This is Coda Radio, episode 133 for December 22nd, 2014. Everyone and welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and we've got a special treat for you this week. It's our best of episode of Coda Radio for 2014. You, the audience, submitted your favorite moments, so it's all your fault if you don't like it. Trust me. We had nothing to do with it. And I'll be joining you from time to time during this episode to share a holiday drink. And I promise it's something much classier than just pouring booze into a Wendy's mug that I picked up before I came in to record these spots. No, no. Imagine it's nice, sophisticated, a real gentleman's glass as we uh, dip into uh, this week's episode of Coda Radio. I have a feeling there may be some trolling ahead. Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. Whoa. That was the eagle of truth. No, no, that's not the eagle of truth. That's the that's the eagle of fear. Because the eagle of truth sounds a little something like... A little bit like that. That's what the eagle of truth no, sounds I'm, like. I'm pretty sure that's the thing. Wait a minute, that's from a cartoon. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, what? Huh? Actually, Wait. I have something to tell you right here on the Quarter Radio program. This is a big confession that only my wife Angela knows about, but I'm prepared to comes. tell you. Here it comes. I, I am prepared to tell you this. I, I don't eat, oh God, I hope I don't ruin this for everybody. That's actually a hawk. It's not an eagle. Uh, okay. So, so you kind of, you know, you were kind of a prick tease there. Uh, Chris is indeed admitting to something today. We have no topic. We have two feedback emails. Yeah. And you're going to call me out and you're going to use this I, episode. He is being called to account for his sins against you. The naive Linux user. I mean, the Linux user. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So you're saying I have led people astray, and today... You are like the false prophet. Uh-huh. A plant, you might say. I, I Dare I say, a pear. Can we say a black ops operative or something like that? Because that sounds you're, really cool. Damn it. You know what I just realized? What? The, uh, what? the secret spy agency in, um, what is it, Archer? Archer? Yeah. Did you see that? They, they're renaming <laughs> it. They actually announced they, they are going to rename it. What are they calling it? I don't know. It's a shame, though. It's a real loss. I think that's a huge you're loss. Like, you're like the James Bond, the MI6 yeah. of Linux FUD. Right. And I've, I, it's a long plant, too. I'm in here for the long ops. No, I'm you, like, yeah, you're, I've, you're been an infiltrator. In, I've been in so long, like, you know, when they put people in the drug trade and they go in for so long, they end up start doing drugs and selling drugs, and you can't tell if they're actually part of it, if they're still a cop, and somebody has to go in and pull them out and see if they're still in the game or if they've completely flipped over and they're playing both sides. That's me. That's, that's, so we're going to get to that today. After our feedback, why don't we start uh, with some feedback? Because I feel like we've all gathered together here today to answer the audience's tough questions. And uh, we start on episode 129 with an email from viewer Chris. Not me. Not me. And he says here, uh, as much as I'm annoyed by the stink that Lenart caused with System D, and this is going back to a topic from a little while ago, I can't help but feel extremely sorry for him. As you've also alluded, as you all alluded to, the amount of hate he must receive, as much as a high-profile developer as he is, has got to be immense. As a community, we all ho- owe him a debt of gratitude for the great work he's done on projects such as Pulse Audio and Cough Cough System D. So this is uh, a response from an email, a couple of, or a topic we had a couple of weeks ago, where Lenart was receiving, he says, even death threats over the creation of System D and the rollout of it. He says the internet community is much better at churning out critiques, spite an outright scary S than is often expressed in praise and thanks. Perhaps we should start a campaign to shower his forums with a little positive feedback, thanking him for the good work he has done, showing him and everyone else that it's not the whole community that is assholes, just the vocal members, just, a, just the very vocal members and a minority. Maybe I was just brainwashed by too much Care Bears as a child, but if I was in his place, I think a simple thank you now and again would go a long way to making me feel like I wasn't wasting my time. Cheers, Chris, and it's Pong Fung in the IRC. Um, this is a pretty extreme opinion. Uh, you, I think a lot of people listening are probably get a little sick in their stomach when they hear about going on forums and praising Lenart. 
Uh, but the reason I thought this email was kind of poignant is uh, before the show today, I recorded an interview with Mark Shuttleworth to be aired on Sunday's Linux Action Show. And in there, I asked Mark uh, something that we've talked about on this show. And I said, do you think all of the vitriol and the criticism will directly result in less code being produced? Because you got to think about a lot of developers, they develop because it's their passion. They're motivated to do it, to create something. It's, it's a creative outlet for them, too. And when you see this kind of vitriol, even on a smaller scale than, say, what the Systemd project gets, you have to figure it turns some people away. And his answer was an emphatic yes. He said, absolutely. He says he thinks we already see it resulting in less code being produced. Uh, so this, to me, seems maybe overkill. But I don't know, Mr. Dominic. Do we need to have a campaign where we go around and encourage developers? Why can't we be friends? <laughs> right. Why can't we be friends? Hands across the world. Yeah, we we could all just not be dicks for like a week, right? Mm, Lionhead, is that possible? I I don't really know, but well, it is also the the kind of thing that you always will pay more attention to the negative stuff, even though though you have a huge amount of positive stuff going in. That one idiot that says you're a dick, he's gonna get the attention. Mm. Also, I think the the think the same people who moan about um, system D and, and stuff are also the same people who moan about um, releases not being very often. Hmm. You think? Uh, okay. All right. So I see where both of you are coming from. Here's my take on it. And <clears throat> unfortunately, I hate to have to be the guy to say this because it doesn't seem very fair. And of course, I might feel differently if I were in Lenart's shoes. But at some point, you also have to kind of just tune it out have a thick skin as much as you can. Now, there is obviously limits to that. But the Internet gives everybody a voice, which is a good thing. But it comes with the downsides, obviously. And uh, if you make the choice to put yourself out into that environment, you know, if you decide to get involved and you decide to put something out there, you also, don't you have to make the decision to not let that stuff get to you? Isn't it more about... Isn't the, isn't the problem with the criticism is it's more about exposing your own insecurities about what they're saying and less about the fact that they're saying it? Well, really the only thing you can back from you can get back from open source development is positive feedback. There's no money or something involved. So if that isn't there... Yeah. And also it's human nature. Like if you like something, uh, you know, to just kind of continue to consume it or appreciate it and not necessarily go out of your way to praise it but if you really don't like something it's human nature to to take it down and attack it and you know build up a case and and you know make your voice heard why it's a bad thing and write that injustice whereas if you like it you know you just happily go about your day and use it and so those are two different types of people and the the one group doesn't really feel the need to vocalize very often um okay well good thoughts chris i don't know about going out though and well <clears throat> Actually, I mean, seriously, it, it might help. I don't know if Lenard is the right target. I mean, Lenard has a job to do, and he's getting paid well to do it. Well, some folks are taking tips for open source now, too, like financial tips, right? What is it? Um, not not Patreon, the thing that came Flat before, Flatter. Oh, Flatter, yeah, 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 sure. And Git so tip, I, right? Git tip, that's the other one I was thinking of. Yeah, with GitHub, yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coinbase just launched BitTip, which I'm sure you'll be using, Mr. Dominic, which is Bitcoin tip-based. <laughs> There's a ton of benefits to not having to dedicate your entire life and constantly, you know, have something that's a, a work-life balance that's this massive struggle and just be able to have a job that goes into a box and it stays mostly, for the most part, inside that box. And there is nothing wrong with picking that if that makes you happy. So don't consider it a drone, you know. Now, I mean, is this box perfectly rectangular with well, white they never are. They and a never. silver logo? Is, is that the box you're talking about? Wow. Wow. No, I'm not talking about an Apple product box. I'm... I didn't say Apple. Oh, you're you're oh you're you're leading us down the path now. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that you, you know your message. I feel like I'm going to need to get the mumble room on here to give me a little backup today because uh, this is uh, this is going bad so far. Uh, uh, you're alone. You're you're on the stand here. You're getting cross-examined for your lies. Okay. All right. Okay. Ouch! Mike was giving it to me, but don't worry. There's a bit more of that coming up. Speaking of staying up, you know what always stays up. 
DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now and bring our promo code of knowledge. That's right, of knowledge. That's Coder December when you check out. You get a $10 credit. Now, why? You say, Chris, why do I want a $10 credit for what? Uh, a digital what? DigitalOcean, my friend. It's a simple cloud hosting provider, and they're dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and trust me. You've got 55 seconds to try this out. Seriously. And pricing plans are only $5 per month. So remember when I told you we had that promo code of knowledge? Remember that? Coder December? Well, that's going to get you $10 credit. It's a $5 a month rig. You do the math. 512 megabytes of RAM is what you're going to get for that $5. A 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a freaking terabyte of transfer. My favorite part, though? DigitalOcean's data centers. They are gorgeous. They got pictures up on that Instagram. They're DigitalOcean up on Instagram. I know. Surprise, surprise. But they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and a gosh, gorgeous brand new state of the art data center everywhere, really. But that London one really, really takes the cake. But if I could give an award to one thing about DigitalOcean, like that you have done, here's your Chris Fisher achievement of winning the Internet Award, it would be for that interface. It's so simple. That control panel is so intuitive. And power users can replicate that badness on a much larger scale with DigitalOcean's straightforward API. Boom, wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. It is amazing. Their, their control panel manages to encapsulate what used to take me hours and hours and hours when virtualization was new and lets you do it in less than a minute. And it's full-fledged everything, DNS management, snapshots, one-click deployment of applications, sophisticated applications too, things like GitLab, entire WordPress, Ruby on Rails, all the support you need for Docker, Ghost. There's tons of great things, but that API is so great. For example, you can plug in DigitalOcean with Cloud66, the easiest way to deploy, monitor, and manage a Ruby on Rails application. Because of that API. Or check out Droplet, a small, easy-to-use, lightweight iOS management client. Gives you all of the information about your droplets. There's several clients I featured. This is one of the neater ones. Uh, here's one for Android. It's called Basin. It's really nice. Gets you right in, gets you the information you need. Managing all of this from your smartphone. Man, that's slick. All taking advantage of the API. Of course, you could write your own things to, tell, to plug into that for sure. But other people are doing it as well. They've also got a fantastic community writing tutorials, and they're willing to pay up to $200. Go check them out. We've got a link in the show notes, and they'll work with you. They have editing staff. It's an amazing package. Mike uses them as the back-end infrastructure for a lot of his apps, and so many of the things that we do at Jupiter Broadcasting, a process to manage that, happens on a DigitalOcean droplet. I use them all the time, every single day. I also have my phone syncing to an own cloud instance up there. So much stuff you can do, and the value is incredible, especially when you use our promo code SNAPDECEMBER. DigitalOcean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coda Radio program. All right, well, coming up next, Mike and I debate if it's really fair to consider the Nexus 5 a developer device, and I think he might have won this one. I don't think the Nexus was ever that that developer tool that you thought it was. Really? Yeah, because you know the iPhone being 600 bucks off contract didn't stop people from developing iPhone apps. Well, I don't think people buy it in the same way like that because you don't have to buy as many iDevices to begin with. Right, but the Nexus is also a relatively small percentage of the Google market. Yeah. I mean, if you're a developer and you're optimizing for market share, you're probably optimizing for Samsung. Right, right. right. So you got to get a Galaxy. you got to probably get Galaxy. maybe a Droid. Maybe you get a Droid and you probably get whatever the crappy phone Verizon and AT&T are pushing, probably like the LG, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I mean, the you're not the Nexus... Actually, the Nexus is one of the easiest ones to just not worry about, right? Right, because at least people, yeah, gosh, boy, that's a harsh reality. Didn't... I'll give you I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a project where the colors on Samsung tablets are slightly different, and it took us forever to figure that out because we didn't have the specific tablet. You are bumming me out. We had to go buy, we had to drive to Best Buy, buy the damn tablet, load the software on it, and we found out, oh my God, the hues are, they're just like one notch off because we thought our customer was nuts. Yeah, I would too. I would, I would be yeah. like, yeah, they're seeing. We it had right. it on on uh, you know some no name tablets. We had it on a couple of Nexus tablets. Nothing. <clears throat> Loaded it on the Samsung. Holy crap! The colors are wrong. Computer, what happened? Um. All right. Uh, okay. So, boy, you know, <laughs> I, I that I is a really harsh reality. You're just you've just burst my bubble. Like you yeah. just burst it. I I because I. I felt like the Nexus program was one of the really good things Google did for the uh, smartphone market. Like, I feel it's, like it's a great program, but not for what you're saying. And it's I guess for, you right? kind of helped me. You're helping me understand why they might transition to the silver program, actually. 
it kind of does make yeah. sense. And it's actually helps that it helps soften the blow of that. Cause I've been pretty upset about the death of the Nexus. Cause I really like my Nexus five and I really like the price and I really like I mean, what, what you get for the price. One thing I'd say, if there's a Nexus six, I'm just going to pick it up just because it'd be the last Nexus. <laughs> Dude, maybe they're just keeping this rumor going to just make more sales. <laughs> You know, I think they should call it uh, Nexus the last of the Mohicans. Like, play the music behind it. <laughs> I'd, I'd totally get into that. I'd like that. It's sort of, it, it, it's almost a form of lock-in to the sysadmin, and it ensures that he has a job. To sticking, nobody loses their job for recommending Microsoft on right. maybe an HP solution. Like, it's this whole stack that you get to put a stamp of approval on from top to top and from top to bottom and say, well, look, each vendor along the way, this is their recommended stack. And if you don't deviate from that, it's also a great way to defer all guilt if something breaks. Well, look, we well, followed the recommended spec. Not, not only fault. that, but, a- you know, putting, putting my lazy person hat on, if I was a sysadmin, my rule would always be status quo, right? Status quo. Because if it didn't crash today, probably won't crash tomorrow if we don't change anything. Right. And, you know, let's be honest, no one really taught in a lot of organizations. I know this won't be universally true. No one even talks to the IT people, the sysadmins, until something goes wrong. Yeah, they don't exist the problem, until it's broken. The problem for us devs is that's not how we're evaluated. We're evaluated by how much did you change this quarter. And if the sysadmin is always breaking your ass about, well, what do you mean you want to go to .NET 4.0? Uh, I mean, we, 2.0 has been pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it's like, <laughs> dude, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All Let's right. Put down the hater aid. Wow. Boy, I mean, I'm just being honest. As a sysadmin, I've been there. I don't want it. I want as little change as possible. And every time the developers would ask for more admin rights or more access to something, I would be on high alert. That kind of thing you should be on high alert for. And I and I agree with that. But the the attitude that I've seen with some, and, and I'll be honest, some let's just say clock punching sysadmins, is that every time I stop you from doing something, it means I don't have to work late. Yeah. And, oh, well, if, you know, you have to account for the delay in the project. Right. And, you know, there's also been the situation where the developer pushes you to update something like maybe it's PHP, maybe it's .NET. And then that breaks other things. And, oh, now I have a whole evening of having to fix all these damn things because he couldn't just make it work with .NET 2.0 or whatever. It's kind of a snowball effect of crap, right? Yeah. Once you make that first compromise, that seems reasonable. Oh, well, you know, we have this script that works, you know. Eh, let's not update. You know, that might be cool for a month or two. Uh, several years on, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. And uh, let, me, let me just, can I give you a little war story? Mm-hmm, yeah. I once worked for a sysadmin who didn't believe in using dev and staging servers. Okay. Because, <laughs> okay, I would have to account for the spend of two other servers. I can almost hear that. Yeah, I can see that. So, so oh, and another part of his issue was they had no automated deployment of any kind. Oh. So he would have had to spend a day per server manually configuring it. Like there was not even like a ghetto image that he could just, you know, spin up. Jeez, that's like, that's so... To be clear, we're talking about AWS servers. Okay, okay. Yeah. This is the... God damn it. (laughs) That was a nightmare because then it's, oh, well, can't you just push the production? I don't want to. You know, not really. We shouldn't because no one's tested it. Yeah. I mean, we've tested it on a local host, but that's like the eighth deadly sin, right? Yeah, that's... that's Works on my machine. Yeah. (laughs) All I wanted was a tiny EC2 instance for dev. Yeah. I ended up hosting it myself because I I just couldn't deal with it. Yeah, that's really frustrating, and it it slows down the process. Well, the problem is, again, the sysadmins and poorly managed organizations are graded by two things. Did you keep the cost down? Mm-hmm. Did you keep the servers up? Right. I would have, and this is a developer bias, I would have them graded by how much developer time did you save us? I don't know. I, I think this is going to be the issue for 2014, though. What, I mean, that Scott Hanselman post, um, developer versus engineer versus uh, computer scientist, mm-hmm. resurfaced again in our subreddit. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be one of the defining issues of 2014 is, you know, these jobs aren't really the same job anymore. And certainly the skill set for what I would consider a software developer has a lot more to do with a little bit of business acumen, a little bit of interpersonal skills, mm-hmm. and a lot less of math, right? Mm-hmm. Um, however, when you're designing something Google scale, certainly it's okay if you can't talk to the secretary, but you can do calculus in your head. right? Um, maybe the reality to me, and then more and more I'm starting to feel that, that these are just simply three different jobs. 
These are three different people. I could see that. Um, and one of them has very high requirements and standards and certifications. And if you, well, I think they all have get ex- into it. Yeah, I think they all have extremely high requirements, right? Yeah. The, the difference is, you know, in my mind, the developer requirements focus a lot more on more traditional soft skills, interpersonal skills, in addition to the tech stuff. Um, and the other two are very. I mean, one's purely academic, right? So the academic is kind of different. But the the software engineer label less on the soft skills, less on the business side, more on the algorithmic side. Maybe. I mean, again, if we start drawing these distinctions, it, it can get really messy really fast. And and to be honest, and limited. You probably, yeah, you a good a large enough organization that's going to be effective needs a little bit of both, right? Yeah. You need the Ruby hipster who can step on stage and charm the hell out of everybody there. <laughs> wow. You need the guy like me who can make everyone fantastic coffee. <laughs> and then go play some Hearthstone, which I By the way, thank you to the person who sent me that beta in October. I didn't see it till just now. But thank you. Oh. I got a little present from our friends in California. Nice. Um you know, what was it? It takes all kinds, different strokes. Very true, Mr. Dominic. Yeah, I, 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 guess I, I guess I just don't think it's important anymore. You know, Chris, I had a dream. That one day all my cloud IDEs and your native IDEs would go to school together and then people shut me down. There was a time. So what do you so – when you say cloud IDE, do you mean like one of these faux-fangled HTML5 applications? So I don't even care about if it's HTML5. I, I want something where – my IDE, my configuration is on a ah, server, yes. and it's always correct. Yeah, now now I follow exactly what you're putting. Because I spend way, way, way too much time. And I'm I'm sure you've tried like toying with like oh I don't know tossing some config files in Dropbox. And yeah, do, yeah, I've yeah, done all yeah. kinds of crazy shit. But it's like every time <laughs> I get a new Mac, you know, Rails is a nightmare to install Postgres. Because they change the directories every version of Mac, you, you upgrade, you break Postgres. Here we go again. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's getting to the point where I just – I'm starting to think like this whole package management, dependency management thing is really screwed up. Uh-oh. Late on me, brother. So I, I they you know, have package thinking, management and dependency management on the Mac. I thought that was something you guys haven't invented yet. Oh, he cuts me to the quick. <laughs> well, there's homebrew. I'm waiting right. for the innovation. I'm sorry. I'm sure it'll be very innovative. So I had a dream, Chris, of a mythical server, probably hosted on DigitalOcean, where it just had my setup correct all the time. It knew what I needed. If I put require some gem name, it just installed the gem. And then I was back to hell with, did I install Ruby gems as root like an idiot? Can Ruby mine read it? It was just really a bad time. Then I got to thinking, .NET has lots of dependencies too. Sure, sure. Node has dependencies, although they do a little better job, right? They have NPM, which is like Ruby gems if it was less crappy. And we don't won't even talk about PHP because obviously their shame is well just, done. Yes. It's well documented on the Code Radio program. Well documented. I, I kinda just want to not have to worry about this anymore. This almost seems like something that's almost a no die. I guess I'm not getting why this hasn't been done yet. it it seems like what you want is maybe profiles that get stored in the cloud. Uh, where you launch you launch the ID and you say, Okay, load this profile, load this project, and it pulls down all of the settings, right? All of your configuration, your, even your window arrangement. Well, I think it doesn't happen because it's it's not really practical. I think it's a stupid thing to want. Hmm. You think? Because you know, because I, I guess you could take this and you could apply this to anything. Like, I'd love to have this on my video editor because I always I have to spend you know hours tweaking my video editor after I load the machine, and especially dude with Lightworks. And the worst part about Lightworks is you have to log in to use it anyways. So you have to log in with an online account, and it just burns me that I log in, and then I spend an hour or two tweaking the UI layout. So you, you know what it is? I'll tell you the exact use case, right? You get a new Mac, you yeah. need to use Rails, and yeah. Postgres is satanically hard to install. You know what the Red Hat guys do, don't you? They just run Linux, and this problem is less of a pain in the ass. Well, there's that, yes, uh, but no. 
uh, actually, some of them use Macs. And uh, they use Docker, and so they keep all of their stuff in Docker containers, and they check them in and check them out on them as on their machines as they go. Yeah, there. You know, I've I've looked into that. I even tried it. It's, so I want to go a step further with this, Chris. Not just dependencies. I have a specific IDE theme called Tomorrow Night and Tomorrow Night Eighties that I like to use. Tomorrow Night Eighties. Yes. Okay. That's I interesting. Just- well, you know, you need to feel like the guy from the original Tron when you're coding. I okay. Mean, they, all right. Okay. If you're not right. making an artificial version of yourself who's ultimately going to lead to your destruction, then you're just not doing it. Right. I think 10 things Linux on the desktop is better at. For me, it's all about my workflow under Linux. Because oh, here we go. It's a personal preference. Well, no. Uh, yes, in a sense, I suppose it is. So, do I, you know why I'm bringing this to you? Why? Do you, you can't figure it well, out? Well, do you want to hear why I like... Okay, go I ahead. I can tell you why. Why I'm doing... The, why I'm torturing I you I want today. to tell you why I like the GNOME 3 desktop. Oh, I know why. So the truth is, I've been very disturbed by the volatility in the Linux community. Oh. And um, I realized something. If I could turn them against you, you guys would just implode. <laughs> like, like, really, you're the last one. You're the last sane Linux commentator around. Uh, maybe. That could be true. That could be no, true. No, it's, it's definitely true. Because I listen to several, and I read several Linux sites. <laughs> I don't know if, like, all your pot got laced with crack and everybody just went off the fucking rails. <laughs> but I tell you, Leonard Pottering says two little things and everybody goes, Rawr! Yeah, you know, I have, you want to hear my, you want to hear my real hippy-dippy crazy <laughs> theory about this? I, do you think maybe, like, when, when real bad stuff is going on in the world, it, like, stresses people out, like, kind of like at a low-level irritation level, and then they take it out in, like, other ways, like, in stuff that doesn't quite matter as much? Like, so if people are getting, like, this constant fear pounded in them about Ebola and ISIS, maybe, like, they're getting a little more stressed out than normal, so then they snap over smaller stuff, even though they don't even realize it's almost like a redirection of anxiety? I'm sorry, there is a very creepy Linux person right at my door staring in. (laughs) You gotta, this is why we gotta have a video show so I can see this. Uh, Because, yeah, I've noticed it seems to be really bad lately, too. Um, So, so why, why the hatred? Why? They, I mean, obviously Linux is great on the server and on embedded systems. Well, but yeah, because there's no flame wars in the Ruby community or the Mac community, or the you know, I mean, yeah, it but, happens but, everywhere. Okay, but the Ruby community and the Mac community are full of psychos, like <laughs> quite well, literally sociopaths. Yeah. I, yeah, a little bit, especially that Mac community over there. I know it is too bad. It is too bad um, because it, everybody wants it to be the. I think what it is is that expectation. That everybody wants it to be the open source kumbaya party. Where everybody is uh, braiding each other's hair and uh, code is flowing freely. But it's just, you know, it's just not how humans work. Man, that sounded really wise, didn't it? I'm glad I recorded that. You know what else is wise? Signing up for Linux Academy. Head over to linuxacademy.com slash coder. So you can get our special Coder Radio discount. They've got a bunch of great courseware that's going to empower you to take your skills up to the next level. linuxacademy.com slash coders go over there and take advantage of our special coder radio discount get step-by-step video courses downloadable comprehensive study guides and as the course requires it the courseware comes with its own server they spin it up for you on demand give you virtual server let you access it if it's an aws instance you're on aws but your linux academy subscription takes care of it you don't have to worry about it and you get to choose from seven plus linux distributions and the courseware will automatically adjust to match the distribution you choose it's so cool you also get to keep track of your progress as you go along so you can see how long each section is going to take how long you spent you can quiz yourself and check yourself but linux academy keeps getting better they've really invested in open stack courses this year uh docker is an area they're getting into now which is this is if you're doing development on top of docker why not go take that course right because if you go to linuxacademy.com slash coders you're getting our discount anyways uh vagrant is a topic that's probably worth learning now puppet yeah yeah if you got more than a couple of servers i definitely recommend you go learn puppet and these are like starting at beginner levels and they'll take you all the way up to professional courses uh folks have recently gotten a couple of jobs just on their training at linux academy alone i heard from a couple of recent success success stories that are really awesome to hear in fact um one of the folks that got a job right out of his certifications that he got after linux academy he went and started working immediately at amazon in their aws division that, I mean, this is top-grade stuff. The Linux Academy courseware, it's above everyone else's because it's created by people that not only have a passion for open source and Linux and these technologies, but are familiar with them. So instead of generic training that has everything from fixing your sync to setting up a, you know, a Linux box, it's hyper-focused. 
extremely detailed, very accurate from people that have been in the field, developers, Linux enthusiasts, system administrators, and educators all came together and they created Linux Academy. It's legit. And you can go to linuxacademy.com slash coders to take advantage of the discount. Uh, some DevOps content has been really flooding in over the last few months as well. So that might be uh, of interest to some of you in the Coder Radio audience. Go learn Python, Android development, Ruby, AWS, even Mike's favorite, PHP, over at linuxacademy.com slash coders. And a big, big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. You guys rock. Next up, a topic I expected would get a lot of pushback. Oh, Chris, you're an old codger. It's not done that way anymore. You need to get with the times. But in fact, I ended up discovering that people were feeling the same way I was. At least a lot of people were. And it was kind of validating, if I do say so myself. You know, Mike, I've been thinking about this. Um, in terms of like the Google web apps, like Docs and Spreadsheet thingy, whatever it's called, and Gmail, um, and uh, all of and, and Office three sixty five or three sixty, whatever right. it's called. You know what? They're still slow as crap. I'm so sick yeah. and tired of seeing Windows draw and, and icons pop in. Like when you go use Office on the web, you have to see the damn toolbar populate with the individual icons and stuff. I have a freaking SSD and a Core i7 rig, and I'm waiting for these websites to render their JavaScript and their icons and all of this crap. And I'm sorry, but I just don't buy it. It's 2014. They failed to deliver. The applications are not as responsive. The UIs are usually not as intuitive. They generally feel compromised in some way. And they typically do not feel like native applications. And definitely never and under any circumstances ever seem to perform like a native application. And at this point in time, I just kind of want to say I'm sorry. I know HTML5 makes it so much easier for everybody. And that would be super cool. But why the hell have we worked so hard on making our computers faster and making our connections better and giving our giving our giving ourselves these systems that can do these amazing things just to put it all up in the cloud and have it super slow and laggy? Uh, because we don't want to target individual platforms. I just can't. And and here's what drives me nuts about this. Let's hear it. Okay. The thing is, like. It's very good for Linux if HTML5 applications rock, right? That's a very good thing for Linux because it, it sort of right. normalizes the underlying platform. However, I, I think the proof is in the pudding. The, uh, it, it just it is not – it is just still today, even with all of the investments in Chrome and WebKit and, their, and the VP8 engine or whatever the hell they use now, it's still not good enough. And it's, and it's one of those things that when I'm really busy and I'm really working on a lot of stuff, it is really aggravating. And I often find myself dropping down to local applications yep. and then moving the data up into one of these cloud applications or storage systems when I'm all done. So in the case of Google Docs, I'll, I'll format an entire show in Heropad and then copy and paste it and put it into a Google Doc. And then I will do very small modifications in the Google Doc. But anytime I actually need to get some work done in a, in, in a fast pace, I take it out of Google Docs again. It's it's like this for, all, for spreadsheets, all of it. It... Uh, and that's why when I see this stuff, and I, I want I want it to work out because I want the Linux desktop to be sort of on the same playing field as all other desktops. And web apps that are really good seem like a great way to make that happen. And the thing is, the company and the platform that's more about build it for build a build it for the platform is more iOS and Apple, and they're the yep. ones that are sort of maintaining that line while other folks are going down this other path. And, I, and, I, and I've been on that path so far because I keep telling myself, you know, it's early. And they're going to make it better. And it's going to get but You know what? It hasn't gotten better. It actually has gotten worse. Like, Google Plus is essentially now an application. And it makes my computer slow when it yes. renders. And that's, though it's even worse under Firefox. And it shouldn't happen anymore. It just, it's, I don't want it. I don't, I don't want that. I'm getting old, I guess. I know. I know the feeling. Like exactly, it's like the one part. You know, I like SSD systems, so I don't have a whole lot of local storage. So I definitely yeah. don't want to install apps all over the place. Right. At least not big apps. I'm I'm a big fan of the. Uh, you know, the, the really, to me, the smaller the footprint you can have on a on a device. Right. The, the better. Then the then the smaller the SSD, and that's one of the more expensive components now in these computers. Yeah. I agree. 
That's how I, and and but at the same time, like the stuff that I I use regularly, like Sublime Text and Harupad, like they have to be, they have to be local performance. I I never ever want to see a menu draw anymore. Like this is yeah. not the eighties. I I guess maybe that's a little bit of it too. Is that uh, I've already been through all this shit. Okay, I've already done this. I've already had slow computers. I've already had machines that have to draw stuff on the screen that cannot access their storage fast enough to load the icons. I've I've done all of this. I, okay, we we we've been working to get past this, and I I it, it actually does feel a little bit like a step back because these these problems degrade my interaction with the technology. They make oh, the technology seem less capable. I actually think it's a bigger deal than just I have to wait. I think it fundamentally alters the way I interact with the technology, and I think it's a step backwards. Okay. So let's, I mean, let's just slow down a little here, right? The whole HTML5 thing. It's not meant to be the best experience possible, right? Yeah, I guess. I'm not sure I'm yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah, it's not It's meant to. to be cost efficient for the publisher, right? I mean the marketing is right once, feel native everywhere, but I think the reality it's make it easier for well, the developer. It, it's okay to do stuff like that, but I think people when they do that need to understand that you're making a trade and that trade is you know, you're trading lower cost of development for um, you're trading. I don't, I don't know how you'd put it, right? Well, you're trading nativeness to the platform for a lower dev cost, and in exchange, we're also getting more platforms. And it doesn't it also kind of come from a? I mean, so uh, before app stores got big, I would say everybody was kind of on the web first train, right? The web is right. the new platform, web first. And HTML5 was kind of like, well, you build your web application, which is your most important right. app. And maybe arguably still is, right? Probably arguably still is. Uh, you build that first, and then you get your secondary, your second tier apps that you, 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 know, you put up into a nice little button on somebody's smartphone. Uh, and who does that fundamentally benefit? That fundamentally benefits Google because that makes all of these things indexable, that makes them all on the web, that makes everybody playing on the same playing field that Google plays on. So uh, when I think of web apps and I think of pushing HTML5 forward and I think of building complex applications, the first company that comes to mind as a champion isn't Mozilla, it's Google. And I can't help but think that's because it's in Google's interest that if the world goes this direction. But I don't actually think it's the best for for end user experiences. And so, I, I mean, I try to get happy and excited about things like Ionic and phone gaps improvements, but... At what point? What at what point is it appropriate to say this technology has failed to prove itself out, and it's not worth as much consideration as it once was? At, when do you draw that line? When do you say, "Sorry, guys, you had your run, you had your chance to try to make it work, you haven't pulled it off, we're going elsewhere"? Because it, it seems like we're approaching that point to me. But I don't know if it's it's not a hard line, right? I guess it's dependent. On the technology and the use case. Yeah, I, I think you have to think about, you know, what is the priority? Is the priority because certainly there's this element of like development cost that's in here, and we're kind of glossing over. And you well, and I think part of the bet is the technology and like JavaScript engines and all that get better over time, right? So you're hedging a little bit today, and hoping that somehow magical technology comes around that you know renders JavaScript on the GPU, and now all of a sudden it's crazy fast. Well, you're also looking into. You know, a lot of these people are doing apps that are just front ends to services, right? Front ends to things that they're already selling. So, does it matter if they're necessarily the best experience? Like, I, I'm I'm thinking of like, and, and the counterpoint to this would, of course, be what happened with Facebook, right? They went HTML5 and they had the backtrack. Yeah, big time, right? And but a lot of like internal company apps totally could be HTML5. The other thing that's yes, I do agree there, right? Yes, okay, good, good line to draw there. I think that's a good point. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of business internal applications and things like that where it makes a ton of sense. And so why not have it be as feature rich as possible? But see, our our friend here that's emailing us, David, he's not writing a business app, right? He's out writing apps for clients and end users and things like that. Uh, that's where I think it's a little bit of a risk 
Because it's, I, I don't know. I mean, it depends on the client, obviously. Like you're I don't to know. Say. I mean, the, the whole consumer app space right now is kind of a ghetto, right? It, it's, you know, as an app developer myself, it's a tough road to hoe, really, being a consumer app publisher. I don't know. And this might be a byproduct of the market maturing mm. and saying that. Because mm-hmm. if you think about even like desktop software, desktop software doesn't make a whole lot of money, right? Like for cons- selling software to consumers. Right. It's really that B2B enterprise space. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, or I, niches like gaming or. Well, we, we, we talked about, you know, the App Store Gold Rush was over. And I, and I think it kind of has been over for a long time. Yeah. And the people who do well now don't do that well. And right. it, it's, it's. No, that's not to say you shouldn't do a consumer app. It's just. Certainly the bar is higher, right? Well, and that's why building something for the web, you know, you're outside the App Store game. But right, you're still, the bar is nice and low. You can I mean, still, let's be honest. Yeah, and you, but you can still be a player there. It's much more discoverable. So that's why I think it is important not to say to write HTML5. I mean, my what my rant is about is not is not to say all HTML5 applications should be dead, but what I think it is is let's get off the hype train and realize that it has a much more limited use case than I think we have all been told it does. Maybe that's more fair. Like I don't, I don't think it's even appropriate for a word processor. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a crap product. Uh, both, I've tried both Microsofts. Uh, I've tried uh, Google's. I don't. Isn't Apple making one too for Works? Yeah, they have one. It's I not, haven't tried it, but it's not very good. Uh, again, I, I would challenge you and say, okay, certainly it's not as you know, Word online is not as good as Word on Windows. Yeah, I would say enough? by a huge – well, I, I no, I don't think it is. Like, and see, this is where maybe you can quibble because I think my definition of not good enough is different than your definition of not good enough. My definition is when I'm grumpy and I'm in a rush and I'm stressed and I'm working on something and I click on that, that ribbon and I cannot see the button I want to click because I'm waiting for the icons to pop, 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 and it just takes a few seconds or maybe a second or two. Uh, but that's not good enough for me. Yeah, I don't think that's really an issue. I think that's more of like a bandwidth thing. I think it's I think it's yeah. I mean, there could be there could be 30 different causes, right? Microsoft could be having a server issue, Comcast could be right. dropping packets, but I mean, that's my biggest argument against this whole bad thing is that there's two you, you can't you guarantee can't control the experience. The experience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, if those are native apps, regardless of any of that, it'd be popping right up. And now, the reason why the okay, and I I I, I will grant you I think some of my bias comes from the fact, like I said, that I've come from a time when these problems were were insurmountable. You could not, there was no option but to have a computer that slowly drawed the toolbar. That's how right. fast computers were. That is, that is not the world we live in anymore. We live in we live in an era where I can have a 4K display with SSDs and all this stuff. I I want to benefit from that, and I don't I don't think the trade off in my end user experience is worth the developers trade off in de- development time for certain sets of applications. Yeah, now, I for some it, sets, I can I, I'm buying what you're selling. I think the market has already spoken. I mean, certainly for desktop, right? I think mobile, thanks to low end Android devices, you know, it's a little different. But certainly in the desktop space, I I, I don't I, I can't imagine a case where unless you just want like that native experience. There's a legitimate reason not to go web app, um, and this is as someone who prefers native apps. Mm-hmm. I just I can't make the business case. I know it sucks because it means I'm going to have a whole bunch uh, of more slow apps. I'm going to go a step further and say I can't see a reason not to go Chrome app. <laughs> what are we making the new Internet Explorer here? I think we are. I really do. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, I mean, where, where in fact. What was it? Uh, oh man, there was a Google website I was on the other day, or somebody, somebody I can't remember. Somebody sent me a link or something where you go there under Firefox and you get a pop up that says, "This site is best experience with Google Chrome." Here's a link to download Google Chrome. And I just thought, boy, you replace those words with Internet Explorer, and we are right back where we began. It's kind of a little disappointing. It was a Google site too. Which is disappointing. And then uh, when the Microsoft Band shipped, 
if you're using Chrome to order it, their ordering page wasn't rendering properly. So like when you tried to click on to get more technical details and stuff, the pop-up doesn't render in Chrome. So it's still a mess out there. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it, it really is going to be like the WebKit master race here. And wow. WebKit really means Chrome. Now we got a good one here from uh, Bart. And uh, he has a question. Oh, shoot, you know, Slexi uh, ate one of my emails. Uh, darn it, it was from a, a longtime listener from episode one, too. But I did get his book recommendation, so we'll cover that, too. I did not, I was not able to get his email because Slexi was having an outage, which is the little paste bin alternative I use. Uh, so Bart writes in. We'll get to Bart's email. He says, hi, Mike and Chris, still catching up on the shows after a brief hiatus. What the hell? What, Bart, a hiatus? Oh, man, I... He's a jackass. No, I'm kidding. It's totally fine. I'm glad you're back, Bart. Uh, Bart, he says, uh, oh, I also congratulates you on the marriage, Mike. So, uh, boy, I probably should have read that part before I gave him a hard time. Bart, you're awesome. I'm sorry. He says, I'm sorry if you've already addressed this, but you mentioned in episode 98 that you were wary of deploying your own system for version control and issue reporting. I work in a corporate environment. I've used GitLab and Redmine together, and it's been great. I, uh, he says, by the way, deployed it in under a day myself using MySQL and Rails. They've been stable and easy to manage. GitLab has many of the features GitHub has, including user-owned repositories, forking, merge pull requests, and Redmine fully provides features for issue tracking and time tracking. It's easy to get set, and so and it's easy to push out commits, and they're linked to Redmine for issues, and I can automatically close them when I push code. You may have some other risk-driven incentives not to deploy your own system, but I just wanted to let you know that GitLab and Redmine make it ridiculously easy. Bart. Well, what do you so think of I- that? That's actually funny because the topic of today's show is how uh, how fingertip moved from GitHub to GitLab on a DO server. I was thinking the same thing. So, oh, I yep. did. Oh, no, I didn't get the email. Shoot. Well, I'll cover our uh, book pick towards the end. Do you want to jump into that? Why don't we just jump right in? Yeah, let's do it because that's kind of answering Bart's question right there. Yeah, so been evaluating solutions for a while. Uh, folks who listen back will know that, you know, we were getting to the point where GitHub was getting very, very expensive. Granted, it's a small expense compared to, you know, payroll, but yeah. – Still expensive for what it is, right? Um, also, there have been some issues with GitHub. Mm. There were a few outages in a row that mm-hmm. were causing, with our already very compressed schedule at the time, causing a lot of undue pressure. Yeah, that's stressful. So, yes, I know if you if you need the remote server to be up with Git, you're doing it wrong. But <laughs> at that at that point, we were just doing it wrong because everybody needed to merge now. Um, and it was just one of those kind of situations. So, you know... DigitalOcean, we've been using it for a while for deployments of basically Rails servers and a few Java Play. But interesting side note, Chris, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of Rails again um, rather than Java. Hmm. Anyway, we ended up installing the, uh, the GitLab that DigitalOcean pre-configures for you on the server. Now, this took, I think, a grand total of 10 minutes. Oh, nice. Did you the install and the configure. And the biggest portion of that was me waiting for it to update itself because... The version DO gives you is actually not the most recent version. Mm. So I went ahead and updated it because we are currently using a chat room called Slack. Mm. Um, and we wanted the Slack integration for notifications. Now, there are a few... So GitLab is extremely friendly to developers. But there are a few features that um, obviously GitHub had that are more non-developer PM management friendly. Uh, for instance, uh, hold on yep. one second. Sorry, real time follow up. Uh, Russ Jr. 8 in the chat room says the DigitalOcean just updated their GitLab image. <laughs> so oh wow! Go. Okay, yeah. So we did this a while ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, right off the bat, GitLab is not nearly as pretty as GitHub, and for some people, that's a problem. It doesn't deal with issues as well as I would like it to. Oh. Uh, for instance, you can do issues. You can do tags. But GitHub had a very neat system where you could color code your issues. GitLab has oh, a yeah. few built-in ones. Yeah. But, for instance, we have a crasher and a bug. For some reason, crashers are green, a very happy green, and bugs are red. Not great, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot what we used to do in GitHub. I think bug was red and crasher was, like, blackest than I had itself, or, or maybe it was a darker red. Something that catches the attention, though. Right. Um, it has milestones, but... They're, again, it doesn't have the same visual, visualization as GitHub in terms of like percent completion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's less of an at-a-glance view for like someone like a PM or someone like that to see every milestone for every project. 
So it's it's a little more honestly it's a little more open source, right? It's very developer friendly, but not exactly oversight friendly. Now you could say, well, if you need to add all this oversight, you know that's not really what source control is for, right? Um, and that's fair. I mean, as a Git source control system, it's awesome. It just doesn't send, it doesn't give you enough of the, uh, should we say views into the data that you would want? Yeah. Yeah, that as makes someone, sense. As someone managing things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what the writer did, I, it's kind of interesting to me, actually, because he, he uh-huh. used GitLab where it's strong and right. then he used Redmine where it's strong. Right. Now, I've never liked Redmine because it looks terrible. Uh, it gives me flashbacks, to be honest with you, yeah. but it, it does uh, do the job. It's like Jira. It's a little too enterprisey for me. <laughs> oh gosh, enterprisey. <laughs> oh god, enterprise. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those situations where really the the biggest issue that we're having with GitLab is the bug tracker. Um, having said that, it's fantastic, right? Uh, certainly, if you're one person or one or two people developing code, you should be fine. It's really the issues of scale where. I think what's happening is as we scale a little bit, GitLab's internal issue tracker is not robust so, enough. I guess before you go to the group stuff, uh, let me ask you this. If I'm, you know, uh, kind of my, my work on, on my own little project myself or, you know, a team of a couple of people, why would I use GitHub over GitLab if I'm paying? Like what would be – it just seems so obvious. I could see – it almost to me seems like GitLab's more advantageous when you get a little bit bigger even though the cost is more. You mean GitHub is a little more advantageous? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. GitHub, the pay service, almost seems better for larger groups, even though you're paying more. But also at the same time, you're probably at a you're probably if you're in a larger group like that, in a more likely position to pay more. Yes and no. I mean, GitHub has some also weird things about like the developers being, you know, the way the organizations work in GitHub is a little weird to me, right? Mm. Where it's there. It, could be their personal account using your organization. I never really loved that. Get it out of here. Um, I don't know. I mean, as GitHub has advanced, it's become a little too social networky for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly it, you have a point in that it does offer a lot of features. One thing I would challenge is that because of you know the, the development shop business model, we tend to scale repos, right, faster than people and faster than revenue. So what that means is the increasing cost of GitHub, we're just getting a little silly because we constantly, every project needed these two repos, right? And you start to feel like they're nickel and diming you because, I mean, to me, you know, one, a a three-man team with ten repos, I almost felt like you should pay by the person. That might be a more accurate measurement of how much you could afford to pay, rather than how many repos did you did you open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, someone in the chat mentioned Bitbucket. We actually used to use Bitbucket. It was right. Um, that's where you started, right? Before yeah, you... that's where we started before before um, before GitHub. Bitbucket has a lot of the same issues as GitLab, except Bitbucket doesn't have the advantage of you hosting yourself and owning all the data. So there's another side of this is where owning all the data might may or may not be important to you. Uh, in my case, it's become important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, setting up GitHub, GitLab, if you've ever deployed a Rails app, it's not very hard. Uh, in fact, there's a config.yaml to change everything, right? Let me ask you this. Would you, uh, what would it take... To make Michael Dominic, you mean you have the HTC One M8? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What would it take to to make you want to pair a Android or Google smartwatch with that phone? Like, what does it have to do? A lobotomy. Really? There's nothing like hey, uh, you don't you don't find like Google Now to be a useful feature that if you just have that on your watch all the time. Uh, so there is a certain level of creepy I'm willing to deal with. I think having something strapped to my wrist is going to be where I draw the line. But what's the difference between having it on your wrist or having it in your pocket? To be honest, not much, and I'm I'm more and more uncomfortable with Google now. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I just want to throw this out there. If you're a felon, they strap a thing to your ankle that has the same functionality as the Google Watch. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. Right? okay. There, there, there's a level of creepiness that, I, that I'm starting to see out of Google in particular that I just – it's making me very uncomfortable. Yeah, I I am there with you. And I keep I keep trying to ask myself, you know, is this worth it and those kinds of things. Yeah, Google now is neat, but it's not practical enough for me to be like I'm going to, you know, give up all the privacy. And it's not I'm not, you know, I'm not a tinfoil hack, you know, government guy like you and Chase are. I'm more a well, what if someone manages to compromise my device guy. He's a jackass. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Uh, this is Google now one, two years in. What if we're Google now five years in and it's, you know, it's a handy mother effort. Like it maybe notices if you're forgetting about something uh, and it could vibrate your watch before a meeting. And, you know, like what if Google now becomes a little bit like, you know, an actually very useful tool that helps you make your life a little more organized when you're busy? Yeah, so there's a balance between useful and creepy, right? And right now I think they're way too much on the side of the creepiness. They're not giving me enough functionality. Now, if it becomes to the point where, you know, Google now turns into Cortana, not Microsoft Cortana, but, you know, the character from Halo. the game. Like, yeah, like your your virtual assistant where she, using the female program because the voice actor is female. It's Garjo. Thank you. Can, or like Hal, right, whatever. Yeah. Can kind of talk to me, have an intelligent conversation with me, anticipate my needs as a you know human personal assistant would, then I might be willing to compromise more of my privacy and more of my but data. how can they do that without starting at this level and monitoring you and learning about you? Like, I was thinking about this the other day. Hey, hey Chris, I love vaccines. That doesn't mean I'm willing to take your experimental one in the, in the arm, right? Okay, fair enough. Good yeah. point. Let, it, let other people be the guinea pigs, right? Right. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day is Google now knows every day when I drive from my house to the studio and when I drive back because that phone is always with me. And when I go into the dashboard, you know, I see these, this here, this here. And Google is learning about a new routine that I have in the last few months of my life. Uh, and I don't know if I have a problem with that, but I, I do wonder how much people actually stop and think about that. Is there, is there you, yeah. you might be 5 to 15 years into this and realize that this company has essentially established a behavioral pattern of your life for the last 15 years. Is that a let's, bad thing? Let's kick, it on a, uh, let's kick it up a notch, Emerald style. We get into some of this health functionality. You know, you're on the toilet. Perhaps things aren't going well, Chris. You know how it is. And then all of a sudden, bing, your watch goes off. Consider some Metamucil. Oh, wow. You think they'd do that? I think if I was a marketer, that would be an amazing opportunity. You're at your most uh, yeah, it's, it's almost, vulnerable. So one, of the things, so one of the things that changed the way I think about Google, where I used to be like, I was balls deep into Google. And then one of the <laughs> things that made me sort of change my mind is I read into the Plex. Yep. And I realized great book, by the way. Anybody should read it if you haven't. Yeah, if you're if you're all in on Google, you should read into the Plex. And, and then I, you will be all out. But. Well what I realized too is so much of Google's not being evil and not being creepy currently hinges on the two guys in charge. And if those guys step away from this company, there is an army of marketers that want to do the creepiest as possible, and they have been holding them back, saying, No, we cannot cross this line. And well, when those and guys are that, gone those lines have moved. They do move. Yes, they do yeah. move. Yes, absolutely. They move because they they evolve over time, too. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure they get whittled away. But what I realized is, is these guys are going to be super, super far into our home, super far into our lives. And then at some point, Larry and Sergey are going to leave or one of them is going to leave. And what that company is willing to do with the data they've already collected will change. And we have to ask ourselves if at that point, is it going to be too late? And I know this sounds so paranoid. It sounds so conspiracy. It sounds so over the top, but I, nobody's asking these questions in a real serious dialogue. And I didn't mean to turn this into a Google bashing thing, but I do, I do have to say I am more interested in what Google does as far as pushing technology forward, moving platforms forward like Android, and less interested in the things like the glass and the watch because they are beginning to cross that threshold for me. And I'm like you. I'm kind of willing. I'm like, have at it, Haas. Like, if you want to have it, I'd love to see how it works out for you. But... I don't think I want to participate just yet either. And I don't think yeah. I'm going to be buying a Google Watch either. No, I, I mean, I, I might buy one for work. And if somebody wants to develop something it, it's on it, really it depends sure. on how compelling it is and how, if I feel it's going to be creepy or not, I think. And how, like, if if there's a trade-off and I continue to feel like the trade-off is worth it, I, I just try to stay vigilant. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm a little old-fashioned. I, right now, I feel like Google treats folks kind of like cattle. 
in terms of harvesting their data and, and setting them up for marketers. Wow. But hey, I think that's a good place to leave it. And yep. uh, send your hate mail to Alan at superbroadcasting.com. Oh. Alan at superbroadcasting.com. <laughs> okay, let's get down to Brax Tech because, you know, I, th- I think the people have um, enjoyed me torturing you a little bit. Lay it on me, Mr. Dominic. So we know there's people who stopped listening about 10 minutes into the show and are writing their hate mail feverishly, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't actually hate Linux except for Linux people. Uh, um, I don't actually hate Linux except for Fedora. Oh. <laughs> I only hate Arch users. There we go. Proprietary <laughs> software is not ethical. Hey, get out of here with that. Okay, all right. I don't know what you're talking about. Did you, did you hear the voice of someone? That might be your conscious. Is my conscious or yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it is, yeah. <laughs> say fingertip, they, but say fingertip tech was going to deploy a Windows application. Mm-hmm. Ideally, the Windows Store would be part of your strategy, but it could not be your whole way of selling software on well, the Windows platform. If it's a Metro app, I don't know how many choices I right. have. Right, no, I'm, think, I'm thinking more like a, you know, a full-featured real application that people would want to use. Oh, so right. wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> so uh, Windows 8 Metro developers aren't real developers, is that... I, I think uh, Windows 10 shows us that it didn't work and that people want windowed applications. And it's fine. And it certainly gives developers that don't have uh, any design sense a way to develop an application that looks fairly decent. Uh, and you know, Wow, I, wow, design sense. So um, let me just go ahead and ask, what developers do have design sense, Chris? I don't, I, I'm not here to judge. I'm just uh-huh. saying that so the, the design of Metro is – that might be more designed? Yeah, I would say the the look of Metro is very type focused. You know, uh, it's not very. Uh, you, you don't have to go very far to make a, a Metro application, so you don't have to really worry about. You're going a long way not to say it, huh? What? A long way. What? On what platform would you say that design is paramount? Probably GNOME three. And where did GNOME three steal all of its good ideas? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I agree with that statement, actually. You don't know? Or, I, I actually think Yosemite is a pretty big ripoff of Gnome 3. When? Hmm? I want to know who know what when. Well, I, you know, that's a little bit of a rough game to play because everybody's always thought of... It always, you can always find somebody that thought of the idea first. But, uh, uh, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, the, uh, the client-side decorations in Gnome 3 remind me very, very much of the title bars that Twitter renders when you do, like, DMs and stuff. So I actually think... Noam got that idea from Twitter, and now those are being incorporated into Yosemite and things like that. I'm sorry, so you're saying Yosemite is a more attractive operating system than Windows 10? I mean, basically, that's you, yeah. you're, you're. I, I you're would say that's possible. Here. I haven't. I actually haven't really used Windows 10, but that new start menu does look kind of like a hot mess to me. How about Windows 8 and, and Mavericks? How do you feel about that? You know, I I actually think Explorer looks okay, but I, I'm just not a fan of the Metro interface or the modern interface. So, so you're saying that OS X is a more functional, useful operating system? Uh, well, yes. Yes, I do think that, yeah. Then Windows? Yeah, yeah. Right, so you're, you're going to my use. Not for everybody's use. But OS X from- is the daily driver for Jupyter Broadcasting. <laughs> uh, for our editing stations, yeah. Uh, yes or no? No, for our editing stations, yes. So, so you're saying that... So if look, we were to remove look, all the Macintoshes, from look what I have here. What is this right here, Mister Dominic? What is this Show. on our live stream? This would be this would be right here. My daily driver, right here. One of my daily drivers. I have two daily drivers. Oh, what is that? What is this GNOME three nonsense? Yeah, see exactly. Okay, so and so this recording is being processed on a Linux machine, right? No, no, we've we oh, all uh, uh, for uh, 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 what? Well, now, uh, well, I've Windows never, machine. I've never, surely a Windows Vista machine. Uh, so the history of that, I've, I've talked about this before. The history of that is I actually did initially try to get the video production to work under Windows. And, and Windows was not a capable operating system. I, I think we Correct. can all agree that Windows is not a capable operating system. We can. Yeah. The question is Linux, Chris. Yeah, well, it depends what you're doing, doesn't it? So you're saying if you're doing real work, you can't use Linux? No, because web development could be real work, and then you just could do that under linux no problem so if you're just tinkering with wordpress sites you can do it on linux is that what you're saying <laughs> you're trying to take what i'm i was actually thinking of like ruby on rails development and sublime text is what i was actually I, picturing. i'm sorry go to any rails conference and but you could show me 10 linux laptops you could is what i'm saying now you see you're, it's, it's functionally possible uh, 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 
what, what? Huh? And like, I'll give you another example. So for the media production aspect of the job, that takes the Mac. But for the show research aspect of the job, I mostly do that under Linux. And so I, you're saying you're saying the killer app on Linux is Google.com? Uh, actually, I use Heropad the most under Linux. Heropad. It is a Markdown editor that is. I'm aware of it. Yes. So a text editor in Google.com. Um, mo- almost more DuckDuckGo and Reddit these days, but yeah. Well, uh, so it sounds like Chrome is your killer app. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, w- I think Chrome is probably my most critical app. So the Linux platform is not a useful platform to you. Well, no, I use Chrome under Linux. You know but saying? it's not necessary. So uh, what right, I'm saying yeah. is we would remove OS X from the Jupyter Broadcasting workflow. You could not run your business effectively. I wouldn't be able to do video production. I mean, I could, but I wouldn't. So are you willing to say that you need OS X? Yeah, yeah. And are you willing to say that OS X is better than Windows? I've, yes, I've, but I've always been willing to say and that. Are you willing to say that you've been lying to the people of No, Linux? I've never lied about it. Lie all the time. <laughs> what are you talking about? I In saw that in Huh? I saw that Gnome 3. Right. If that if those bars were silver, that would be Mac. What? Huh? What kind of phone are you running? What are you talking about, this Gnome 3? This, But you can't. You see, that's not fair what you're doing what? is you're claiming that well, Gnome ripped what? off Yosemite, but Yosemite came after Gnome 3. That doesn't make any sense. Gnome 3 has had what? this design for, for years you know, now. You know, Linux, uh, you know, being a cancer that it is, I, I, and my good friend Steve told me this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it tends to steal intellectual property from other operating systems and uh-huh. use them. You mean in the future? So you're saying the GNOME development team has a time machine. They went ahead well, and robbed ideas uh, from Apple. We all remember the Samsung trial. Apple spent decades working on the intellectual property and the design language for all their systems. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh-huh. Yeah. So, so let, me, let me ask you a question because you kind of dodged it. You know, I've seen some lovely Instagram pics of uh, your wife and kids and guys having a grand old time. Uh, what, what device were those taken on? Uh, it depends on what day it is. I carry the Nexus <laughs> 5 and iPhone 5. And your wife? She has the iPhone 5S. S for superior. She's always been an Apple fan. Always and oh, always. Oh, yeah. oh, so I had her, I had so her on... Uh, wife. Oh, you're, you're a stand-up guy. I so had, her, I, I I had her on Sousa. Um, and that went pretty badly, actually. Okay, because Sousa was not appropriate for her needs, and it was a unstable operating system. Is that why? Uh, for her, I think it came down to she had a... She was in college at the time, and she had a Windows app she had to run. So, okay, so you're talking in circles, and, and me, I don't what? understand. So now you're saying <laughs> Windows, Windows is inferior. Yes. Oh, but 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 you know, in that. this case, Windows is superior. Well, I think what I think you know me. I always come down to it depends on the job. So, like, uh, if I wanted to play, let's say, a new game like a new Bioshock, and it was only available for Windows, well, I've got enough machines that I could just load Windows on for a little while and play it, and then I mean, to me, so it's you're, just. You're not- voted enough to the Linux cause to install Wine and get the drivers to work, basically. I think what it comes down to is uh, there are are a lot of things uh, Linux is really good at. And there's some things that Windows is better at and some things Mac OS X is better at. I think it's kind of just as simple as that. Okay, so basically, would you agree that his argument is, Pottering's argument is, it stinks from the top, right? The fish yes. smells from the top. Yeah, he goes on the to say the reason this is this way is because Linus, Linus is, po- is, is a dick. Yeah. Is, would you would you say yes, that Linus Torvalds is a dick? Uh, he can be, yeah. Yeah, very much so. So you're on the record saying that Linus Torvalds is the dick. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the show. 